Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in South Asia, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm so excited to have an opportunity to chat with Dr. Jisha Menon, the author of the new book, Brutal Beauty, Aesthetics and Aspiration in Urban India, which was published by Northwestern University Press in 2021. Dr. Menon is an Associate Professor of Theatre and Performance Studies at Stanford University and is currently the Faculty Director of Stanford Global Studies. Hi, Jisha. Super congrats on this fantastic book and really what a joy to have you here to chat about it. Um, I thought we could start the interview by getting to know you a bit better. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your academic journey? Sure. Thanks so much, Neha, for inviting me to do this podcast. I'm really excited to be in conversation with you and really thrilled to find that there's so many resonances across our work and can't wait to get into your um, research um, whenever it's published. I look forward to reading your work. So uh, I'm a professor in the Department of Theatre and Performance Studies at Stanford, and I also have a courtesy appointment in comparative literature. And I also serve as the Fisher Family um, Director of Stanford Global Studies. And I uh, grew up in Bangalore and uh, did my undergraduate in English and then pursued an MA and MPhil in English in Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. And while I was studying um, uh, English, I felt like, you know, I was also very active in the theater scene and wanted to, to find a way to bring together my interests in Uh, literary analysis, close reading, but also in the dynamics of production and actual theater making. So I uh, moved to Stanford to do a PhD in drama, which allowed me to combine my interest in critical theory, but also in creative production. Um, And so I graduated uh, with a PhD Uh, in drama, then I went on to teach in an English department at UBC in Vancouver, and then moved back to Stanford as faculty, and have been here since then. Oh, wow. That's, that's really interesting. And, um, you know, was it was it great to be back in Stanford? You know, it was great to be back, although Vancouver is a really beautiful city as well. And, you know, I had uh, this office which overlooked the forest and the mountains and the ocean so i do miss that occasionally yeah that sounds like such an ideal setting for writing <laughs> yes yes it was beautiful so how did research for this particular book begin what's the story of this book so uh, i started i think the you know the germ for this book really started when i was directing a play in bangalore i had been in the u.s for about 15 years and um And then I went back and, you know, Bangalore kept transforming. And um, I thought I would like to do a show that captured some of these urban transformations and the way it was kind of reshaping social relations. And I thought I would work with uh, Anton Chekhov's play, The Cherry Orchard. 
um, because I, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't have the talent to write my own script. So I worked with his play and used that as a kind of framework um, to allow me to think about questions about, you know, sort of big transformations. How are rhetorics of development uh, justifying the kind of rampant decimation of Bangalore street cover to make way for wider roads, uh, big buildings, a new airport, and all these kinds of mega city projects. Um, so I used a process uh, called devising, which is when your actors work with you uh, to create the script. So it's not a top-down kind of directorial vision where you tell the actors what to do and you write the script, it's like you're co-making it with other actors. And that process was really interesting because I realized there were so many multiple, uh, even colliding, conflicting kinds of narratives that were emerging. Uh, and I thought there's really a story to be told here, which isn't a unilinear story about the progress and development and transformation of the city. There's much more going on that I thought was really complex. And so I... Uh, I, I guess I started the project in earnest in around 2012 when I went to Bangalore for my sabbatical year. Mm-hmm. That's um, that's great. And, you know, uh, so Brutal Beauty makes a case for thinking about neoliberal urbanism as not just a political, economic and social phenomenon, but also an aesthetic one. And as you were speaking about the genesis of the project, I could see how you know you were thinking about it uh, from the beginning um, as contributing to an understanding of Indian cities through a slightly different lens than that has been predominant, especially in urban um, urban anthropology, urban sociology, urban studies more broadly. Uh, in in general, I thought this um, approach was very interesting, and I was hoping you could share with our listeners. Why thinking about aesthetics in relation to Indian cities matters? Um, what does foregrounding the aesthetic and affective dimension tell us about cities? Yeah, I think this was, you know, for me, it was really key because, um, of course, it's impossible not to notice these urban transformations in these cities, including Bang- Bangalore and Mumbai and other cities. Um, and, you know, the way in which neoliberalism is typically written about, we we think about it as the relationship between the market and the state or the economic and the political dimension, the way in which the state is reconfigured to suit the market or the way in which individuals imbibe certain kinds of market logics and that uh, economic calculus kind of saturates their social relations. And I felt like a a very significant part in all of this is the role that's played by aesthetics. That's just not kind of really being pulled out and discussed. Uh, Of course, you know, even just looking at the city, you can see that the whole discourse around world-class city-making projects revolves around beautification and urban beautification. And uh, what does that mean in terms of spatial practices? What does that mean in terms of, uh, you know, uh, um, demolishing uh, informal settlements and remaking those spaces into these glass and chrome buildings, widening roads, uh, evicting uh, people who may be selling uh, things on the street walks, etc. So there are ways in which many of these beautification projects actually end up being very anti-democratic. 
So that was a, a dimension I was really interested in. Uh, but also simultaneously, I was very interested in thinking about the way in which uh, these discourses are also engaged in remaking the self. So I was looking simultaneously at the city and the self as these projects that are being renovated. Um, and here you have a kind of discourses around self-enhancement, how, um, you know, how do you continue to kind of be productive and um, curate the self? Um, and how does that then lead to attrition and burnout of workers under contemporary capitalism that kind of creates this inescapable feedback loop between leisure and labor? So it's looking at uh, how aesthetics are really crucial to the constitution of these new urban subjects um, and how are these new modes of sensorial address, new patterns of behavior, new kinds of habitus, etc., um, being inculcated to suit the demands of this newly emergent uh, capitalist society. So that was one major intervention, is to really focus on the aesthetic within discourses of neoliberalism. And the other intervention was, uh, like you mentioned, in urban theory, where you have a lot of writing that uh, looks at the city through the lens of policy and planning discourses, legalities, technicalities, etc. But of course, I really wanted to foreground affect. Um, and here, you know, to think about the way in which the city exceeds all these social science paradigms, uh, and to think of it really as an affective space. And, um, you know, to me, that's why looking at art was especially helpful, because I think art can be such dense registers of affect. Um, and so to sort of look at these affective politics within the city, not just as a kind of byproduct, but as a galvanizing force within these cities. So those were some of the major interventions that looking at aesthetics within neoliberalism and looking at affect within urban theory were, was allowing me to do. Yeah, that's, um, that's so succinctly put. Um, can you maybe tell us a little bit about um, what are the kinds of cultural artifacts or artistic um, artifacts that you were looking at for, for the book? So I look at a range of uh, material. Uh, I look at uh, theater performances. I look at installations. I look at documentary films. Uh, I look at experimental cinema. Um what else? I think I look at performance photography in one chapter. Uh, so it's it's across you know different genres, and um, they're all kind of trying to capture this kind of affect. So across these works, there are different kinds of uh, each chapter kind of takes up different affective registers. So I start with looking at panic and in relation to questions of property and real estate and the kind of on non-stop construction projects going on in the city. Um, and then I look at aspiration as another kind of urban affect within the call center industry, especially you can see this worked through uh, impersonation within the call center industry. And why are these uh, workers impersonating in these ways? What are the limits of the impersonation? And when are they, you know, sort of not interested in uh, the ways in which we imagine they might be um, indoctrinated into these 
discourses of globality and what are the limits of those discourses of cosmopolitanism. Um, and then I look at queer and non-normative sexualities and look at the shift from shame to self-assertion, different other you know, affects that are circulating in city spaces. And then I look at narcissism, especially in the context of the kind of social media narcissism and uh, obsessive curation of the self on social media. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of um, a way to recuperate narcissism um, to an earlier understanding of sort of dispersing the self into the social. Uh, and then it culminates with uh, looking at obsolescence, the feeling of pastness, of having outlived your utility, of being useless. And it looks at both waste products, but also at humans who then are conceived of as useless and wasted. So that's the kind of uh, trajectory. It, it takes up issues and themes, but then it also links it to particular affects that are explored in greater detail. Yeah, thank you. That was that was really helpful to orient the the rest of our conversation. Thanks. Um, so, in chapter one, as you mentioned, you center the experience of panic as an affective force that shapes social relations in the city. I realize that it's hard to intricately capture the details of performances in an interview format. I mean, even though you write about them so vividly and beautifully in your chapter, but um, could you share a couple of examples about what centering panic? does to the way we think about precarity and inequality in cities like Bangalore? Yeah, um, you know, I think a lot of uh, excellent scholarship has focused on the political economy of precarity, uh, you know, thinking about it in terms of a depletion of resources and the material effects of the economic lack of support. But I wanted to explore what is the affective economy of precarity? You know, uh, I think Precarity has a very powerful affective dimension, the sense of exposure, vulnerability, this feeling that you don't have a safety net, which can absolutely trigger a sense of, uh, of panic. And so I wanted to explore that through some of the artworks. Um, I start the chapter with a look at Sureka's uh, photo series that's called They Had Their Home Here, which looks at a scene of eviction. Um, and, you know, she has all of these photographs of um, evictions from informal settlements and they've basically, uh, the, the homes are in various states of disarray and in various states of rubble, you know, there's kind of smoking debris in these images uh, and just people sitting around listlessly with their suitcases. And so it's a really... A heartbreaking set of images and then on top of that she superimposes a very clinical precise kind of line drawing of a clean aspirational home so she's kind of juxtaposing that scene of panic and disarray with this kind of very clinical image um, to convey some of the affective unruliness that's produced um, and the kind of you know the clinical precision of these very um, identical kinds of homes that are produced in its place. Another example is uh, Krishnarad Chonath. He has um, a really interesting work called uh, Private Sky, which looks, you know, it's kind of like studying up and he's examining the kind of 
elite homes and gated communities. And um, so this particular installation is totally white uh, and very pallid. And it's this bungalow that's sitting on top of a lifeless tree that's held in a pot. So the entire thing looks extremely precarious. Like you don't, it has no real foundations. It could topple. Um, and then on top of that, in a corner, he has this kind of black menacing mosquito as if to suggest that you know regardless of how much you might insulate yourself within these gated communities you're not ever going to fully escape the non-human which will still find its way into um into your uh insulated precincts so you know i was talking to krishnarag chonath and he said the idea for this particular piece came from him watching this uh, construction project that was happening in Bangalore. And um, and he said that whole place was just kind of infested with mosquitoes. They'd, um, you know, it, they were trying to create this new gated community, but um, how are you going to escape the fact that the non-human will still kind of enter into this uh, insulated space? Um, another example that I discuss in the chapter is uh, Shantamani's work home and this is a, a charcoal sculpture that she's created uh, and it was in the wake of uh, the, the demolition of the Babri Masjid and its effects in Bangalore um, you know which uh, also kind of rever reverberated from the violence at that time and she created this image of uh, it's a charcoal image um, which of a pregnant woman um, and it sort of recalled for her her memory of walking away from a woman whose home was burning down and it was a way for her to kind of return to that scene and re-encounter this woman who seemed you know completely kind of frozen in this state of panic um, and it was a way for her to kind of re-engage and re-encounter this uh, woman who she had at that point walked away from. So I, I felt that there was a lot that one could do with these images of um, home and territory and property, but also the kind of affects that they're uh, mobilizing and activating in the viewers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. And uh, it was, I think it complements the existing literature on evictions so uh, Fully and so, yeah, so compellingly. Um, but in chapter two, you take a very different route to thinking about urban subjectivity by looking at aspirations and particularly aspirations of urban youth. Um, you analyze performances that focus on call center workers and the labor of impersonation that makes possible the transformation of citizens into consumers in a global and transnational economy. Um, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about how the performances that you analyzed dealt with the themes of labor and life in call center work and how did the city feature in these performances? Yeah, um, I, you know, I followed up the chapter on uh, property and the focus on spatial transformations in the wake of all these beautification projects with the chapter that looks at how workers work on themselves and you know make themselves the projects of beautification because i wanted to foreground both the city and the self that are both being aestheticized and um 
And, uh, you know, I thought that this would be a really good way to uh, delve into some of these issues because the call center in Bangalore uh, really transformed the city, especially around 2004 or so is when you could really sense that the city had really, um, you know, uh, transformed. Not only had it grown and absorbed peri-urban areas, but also in terms of the kind of temporality of the city. It was now a city that went from being a nine to five working city to a 24 seven city because of course the night uh, workers, right? Uh, call center, people are working through the night to service customers in, you know, in US or UK. So um, it sort of transformed it from a very typical work day to uh, 24-7, a city that never sleeps. Um, and I think that really transformed the spatial and social dynamics of the city a lot. Um, and in that chapter, I look at, you know, how virtual labor really cannot be disentangled from the lived experience, you know. Um, and I look at, um, for instance, Ashima Nubalia's film, John and Jane that allows you to see how employees span a range of subject positions. Some of them work in it for the money. Um, to those who think of it as a form of becoming American, the proximity to whiteness, to race, globality, you know, allowing themselves to kind of imagine themselves as cosmopolitan subjects requires training their fantasy lives uh, and fixating on like consumer products like purchasing an Aprila motorcycle or uh, purchasing skin lightening creams. Um, and it requires, of course, also transformations in their habitus, in their ingrained behavior. They're learning, you know, uh, literally these uh, call centers are training them in what they call accent neutralization. Uh, they're learning how to speak differently, how to enunciate differently. They even... Uh, you know, sort of chew fresh mint. How does this, so the, you know, how is this reshaping your sartorial habits, your somatic habits? How is it even, you know, changing how you're um, activated on a psychic level? How does it remake your subjectivity? Uh, but also what does it do to your somatic and social life if you're just sleeping through the day and working through the night? You know, what ailments does that lead to? So Ram Ganesh Kamatham's play, Dancing on Glass, gets into that. You know, what are the real uh, social as well as corporeal effects that this has on your health and your social life? So it, it allows you to kind of think about the corporate demands to reshape workers' social, cultural syntax um, and kind of create this kind of feedback loop where they're either um, at work or they're consuming, you know? So they're always kind of, um, you know, it's a kind of loop, feedback loop between labor and leisure where you're never really outside of this kind of economy. So you can see that in some of these works. And I also take issue with some of the other works like Aladdin and Kolkata in a Box, which are two very experimental, you know, really, aesthetically pleasing, beautiful, ambitious works, but they reinforce a particular notion of virtuality that is just not grounded. 
Um, so I kind of juxtapose that with some other works that I think are taking seriously the kind of material effects of some of these, um, you know, discourses of globality that are so untethered and ungrounded um, and its impact on material lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned this already, but in chapter three, you think through a, a different relation um, to the city and, um, and in which you think about the transformation from shame to pride in the representations of same-sex desires. So as you put it, you track the affective shift in same-sex politics from shame, stigma, and humiliation to pride and self-assertion. And you do this through a conjunctural analysis that explores the intersections between global capital, public health discourses, and consumer fantasy. Um, Could you explain a little bit uh, about the kinds of plays you chose to focus on and what does juxtaposing the elite and non-elite performances around alternative sexual subjectivities, um, what does that do and what does it tell us about the contemporary urban Indian, um, um, you know, moment? Yeah. So this was also a really, um, you know, interesting chapter because I was looking at various kinds of uh, discursive channels, including foreign NGOs that support AIDS activism, uh, satellite television, media imagery, how are these working with shifting legal regulations that are constellating and enabling the emergence of uh, these new queer subjects. And in this chapter, I turn to the work of Mahesh Dattani, who is a renowned playwright, um, especially of English theater. And I track in his plays from his earlier works like Bravely Fought the Queen to his more recent works like Seven Steps Around the Fire. Uh, I I kind of look at how he chronicles this kind of shift, um, you know, uh, from a sense of shame and closetedness to a much more defiant, much more open kind of self-assertive kind of mode. Um, and you know, sort of thinking, I think, you know, the question that I'm asking there are how are some of these elite queer dramas being played out on the bodies of more marginalized queers who are disadvantaged by class and caste? Um, and how, on the other hand, are some of these public health discourses, especially around AIDS and the risks of sexuality, then mapping out and then ossifying or consolidating some kind of uh, grids around LGBTQ identities. So how do they kind of ossify much more fluid, non-normative desires into this kind of particular identity positions? Uh, and I, I juxtapose that with um, non-elite disadvantaged subjects who may or may not even consider themselves as queer and you know sort of explore what it may mean for us to think with the categories that they use to imagine their own sexual subjectivities so i i then turn from mahesh tatani's place to looking at the works by a revati and living smile vidya and her theater group panmai and they uh, their performances of self-narratives, most of, you know, these are confessional performances and they kind of disclose journeys from stigmatized non-elite transformations 
um, you know, their experiences um, of shame and humiliation to much more confident assertions of sexual identity. So um, the, the sort of trajectory in which you see there's a kind of mapping of a unilinear account of the city's sexual politics that can gather up uh, multiple diverse contradictory kinds of alternative sexual practices into a kind of totalizing narrative that can reduce you know the heterogeneity of the city's sexual geography something that i'm trying to take up and critique by looking at Panmai and A. Revati and Living Smile Vidyas and their works, which can then give you a much more heterogeneous kind of account, a more, I think, nuanced account of the multiplicity of um, non-normative, alternative sexual desiring subjects on the ground. So that was kind of the point of that chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the penultimate chapter, you turn to obsolescence as a mode of engaging with neoliberal urbanism and consumer capitalism, and you focus on the material life of discarded things. Um, uh, This chapter was actually really deeply moving, and I hadn't quite anticipated that, uh, to be very honest. Uh, Through the works of Vivian Sundaram and others, you think about collateral damage, wastefulness, and what it means to outlive value and utility in the context of urban beautification projects. Um, so first, I was curious to know how and when you began thinking about this particular chapter, whether you anticipated writing about obsolescence when you began thinking about your project. And second, could you elaborate a little bit on a claim that you make in your chapter that thinking about discarded materials um, enables us to get a sense of how humans are also conceived of as waste. So what are the linkages between the material and the human and um, yeah, in the context of obsolescence? Great. Thank you so much um, for your kind words. I actually had not thought about this chapter when I started writing my book. You know, uh, in fact, for this book, um, my process was a little bit different than my first book. Uh, I think the first book, because it comes out of the dissertation project so often, we, you know, there's a particular trajectory that that project usually has, which is we have a dissertation outline and a prospectus, and then you go into the field and do your research. Whereas for this one, I went straight to the field, you know, in the sense that I, I went to the city and I was living there and just sort of keeping my eyes and ears open and gathering as much as I could um, the information from artists and uh, people I was interviewing before I decided what would be the topics of the book. Because I, so I think the process was a little bit different in that I actually let the artists and the artworks guide the shape of the book unlike the first one where I had already had a kind of outline and a blueprint of what I wanted to explore. And then I looked for case studies that could elucidate those themes. Here I was actually led by what was in the city and what was the art that was being made and what were the concerns that folks were expressing. So it was a kind of outside in kind of way of, you know, uh, arriving at the chapters. Um, And uh, this project, I mean, of course, 
trash is unmissable in the city. Right outside my home, where my parents live, there's the huge mound of trash, which looks a lot, in fact, like the the mound of trash that Vivan Sundaram has that I opened that chapter with. And that, um, you know, that example that I open it with, it's called The Brief Ascension of Marianne Hussein. And it's, it's, uh, it's a short little film that's made through um, the concept of a loop. And the central image is this kind of uh, artistically arranged heap of trash, which contains uh, plastic and just multiple colors. And then every 10 seconds, you'll see a human body that's kind of, uh, that leaps out of that pile of garbage. And then he kind of poses in this gestus of a kind of superhero and then he is reincorporated into the trash. And then after 10 seconds, he's again ejected out and then again reincorporated. So it kind of works, you know, on this kind of idea of a loop. And this rag picker boy is Marianne Hussein and is someone who works in the NGO Chintan in New Delhi along with Vivan Sundaram. So, um, I, I think this is actually the most helpful image to think about the imbrication of human and waste and how they're kind of uh, not really conceived of as a binary, but rather as a continuum. Um, so, you know, this was really helpful because, of course, you know, we have ways of thinking about, you know, in India, of course, uh, there's a whole different trajectory of thinking about questions of trash. Uh, it's not only a signifier of waste, but it also has all of its kind of uh, connections and relations to questions of pollution. And waste pickers often blur that boundary between who is a person and who is a thing because they are not only picking waste and garbage, they also become increasingly uh, associated with garbage and they begin to be identified as trash, not only with trash. And that association with trash then metonymically kind of just is transferred to their personhood. And so, uh, you know, especially I think when we're thinking about caste questions, Dalits, uh, the idea of ritual pollution is obviously paramount in our minds. And so that boundary separating humans from waste gets attenuated, it gets a little weaker. So I think that that exists as a kind of um, continuum. And of course, it also looks not only at waste that's produced within India, but also at electronic waste. And a lot of the electronic waste is actually uh, imported from other countries. So, you know, one of the activists um, Vaughn Hernandez, in fact, calls Asia the dustbin of the world's hazardous waste. So I also look at some uh, images that look at, uh, again, Krishnaraj Chonath has created some beautiful um, installations of electronic waste, where one of them is called My Hand Smell of You. And although, you know, the title sounds romantic and, you know, sort of, um, has some kind of erotic valence. The smell they're referring to here is the smell of toxic substances that have seeped into the skin of the waste picker who's not using any gloves, not using any protective gear. And now that smell has so infiltrated the skin of the waste picker that that remnant continues to pervade.
Yeah. Yeah, and in a way like um waste is everywhere but I I really liked how carefully you paid attention to that uh being linked to um uh, urban beautification but just city life and uh, urban subjectivity you know in a way that uh, I must admit I'd not I guess I'd not quite um paid attention to uh, discarded or obsolescence or discardedness as being uh, a mode of uh, being which is uh, really interesting uh so Uh, thanks for you know so carefully explaining um almost all of the chapters i really appreciate this and i know many of our listeners uh, are prob- have probably not read the book yet and i hope that they feel very inspired to read the book and i must add that it's so uh, the writing is so engaging and so lucid that i didn't feel like I didn't feel intimidated by the text at any moment it actually felt very provoked and I kept thinking with it uh, so really uh, I appreciate that kind of writing very much so you know uh, kudos to you for doing that uh, yeah. but what are you working on currently and what can we expect to read by you in the nearish future so I have uh, you know I've turned my attention to uh, looking now at the intersection of law and performance i find it a really fertile intersection because while there's quite a flourishing body of work around law and literature i think there's a there's a really exciting opportunity for people in my field in performance studies to take up questions of law and i'm particularly interested in the concept of personhood uh, which is a legal artifice but also a very expansive category that encompasses corporations and rivers but has also denied certain humans the the category of personhood so i'm interested in looking at the relationship between personhood and narrative and linguistic performance in the arena of criminal law in particular so i'm looking at sites of confessional performance i'm calling it confessional performance and looking at these legal practices like witness testimony and parole hearings and exploring how a particular topology of personhood is naturalized in these scenarios of confessional performances and how the actor uh, crafts a kind of performance that stitches together a particular idea of personhood and then displays various appropriate feeling rules right the way arlie hoschild puts it which include you know remorse suffering reasonableness in ways that then directly impact legal decision making so these are just sort of some preliminary ideas i think there's a lot that can be done at that intersection of law and performance that i'm excited about yeah that sounds great and i look forward to reading um your writing as and when it comes out again congratulations on this on this marvelous book and uh, you know i hope you stay safe again in these uncertain and unsettling times and uh, yeah take care thanks for taking time out to do this thank you sir it was such a pleasure talking to you and i can't wait to read your book so <laughs> thanks